joining us on the third episode of She Belongs. This episode is particularly special since the guest we have chosen happens to be one of my personal role models. She's an associate professor in machine learning at Georgia Tech and a research scientist at Facebook AI Research. I'm incredibly excited to interview Professor Devi Parikh today, and I hope you enjoy the conversation coming up. Welcome to this interview, Professor Parikh. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you for having me. And it's uh, it's good to meet you, even if it's remote, but yeah. So glad to hear that. Um, so to kick things off, could you tell us more about your childhood and the influences that shaped your interest in STEM and AI? Um, yeah, I can, I can do that. Um, so I can talk a little bit about my childhood and then I can talk a little bit about my interest in STEM. Um, so I grew up uh, in a nuclear family in India, um, in a mid-sized city called Ahmedabad in Gujarat. Um, I'm the only child. Um, I went to an all-girls school um, until 10th grade. Um, my parents had uh, lived in the U.S. for many years. I was actually born here uh, before we moved back to India when I think I was about three or four years old. Um, and from what my parents tell me, my understanding is that the reason they wanted to move back was a mix of sort of wanting to be there for my grandparents or for their parents um, and wanting uh, a certain kind of a bringing uh, for me. Um, and so that's actually um, something that's uh, in common in my extended family. So my dad has uh, three other uh, siblings um, and they all had a similar trajectory. They all had come to the US, spent quite a bit of time here and everybody moved back for good um, uh, to India. Um, and so of his siblings, the three brothers, uh, so my dad and his two brothers, they all have daughters. Um, and my dad's sister has two sons. Um, and all of these cousins on my dad's side of the family are now back in the US. So there's a lot of commonality uh, within that extended family. Um, we weren't uh, uh, we weren't very well off, but there certainly weren't any um, financial struggles or anything of any kind, at least that I was aware of. So we were uh, we were fairly comfortable in that regard. Um, things like education, uh, being disciplined, uh, planning, uh, thinking things through, <laughs> being punctual, um, putting things back where you pick them up from, <laughs> um, sort of keeping your space clean and clutter free. All of that were like the recurring themes that I just saw a lot around me and how both my parents functioned and what they would tell me to do and so on. So that was kind of, um, yeah, that's just to give you a sense for how my family functioned. Um, there is this uh, funny sort of scenario that would recur uh, many times where if we have, if we've invited some guests over for dinner, um, it would invariably be the case that if they were going to come at, I don't know, 7 p.m. or 7.30 p.m., right around five or seven minutes before that, all of us would just have gotten ready and we would be sitting in the living room just peacefully waiting for the guests to show up. And so there wasn't any drama of any kind, no running around or anything like that. Um, so yeah, so that's to give you a sense of what my family is like. Um, in terms of uh, interest in STEM, um, I think I was sort of always interested in math. Math was my favorite subject. I was quite good at it. Um, and in general, I was a good student. Um, like my grades would say that, my teachers would say that, my classmates would say that. And in India, at least at my time, it might have, might have changed now. Um, but things like ranking students was a thing and like grades weren't considered to be as much of sort of private information as it is considered here in the US. So people are kind of openly talking about uh, who got how many marks as, as we called it there and things of that sort. So it was kind of hard to escape a sense for how we are doing as a student as evaluated by these exams, which may have their own issues. 
Um, but yeah, so I was aware that I'm doing reasonably well in school. Um, and like I said, I was always interested in math um, to the point that I would often use it as a procrastination tool, right? That if I, if I knew I should be studying, I didn't really feel like studying some of the other subjects like geography or history where the way things were set up in India was it involved a lot of cramming of things, which I didn't enjoy at all. And I wasn't very good at, I would sort of keep doing math exams as practice exams beyond a point where I needed to be practicing anymore. I was already fine, um, but I would keep doing that. So, yeah, so I think um, that interest, as far as I remember, was there um, early in school. Uh, so my mom likes telling the story that early in school, she used to be my tutor. Um, and, and she tells the story that when she was my tutor, I used to be in, I don't know, the top 20 percent, like in the top 20 percent of my class. And then she says that my dad then eventually became my tutor. And after that, I was in the top 5% of my class. Um, I don't know if that's actually true. I think that's just a story she likes telling. Um, but yeah, so they were very closely involved in my education. Um, my dad and I in particular uh, would, would go through the entire math textbook for the year um, in the summer before the school year even started. Um, and so, and we both really enjoyed that. That was a thing that would that we would do every day in the summer vacation, spend some time going through the math syllabus. Um, and so I, I remember my dad often saying that he saw um, something in my eyes that made him think I'm I'm one sharp cookie. Like he, he uses that phrase. He still thinks I'm a sharp cookie. And so, yeah, so I think these, it's hard to know which part of this played what influence, um, but this is just a, description of things that come to mind um, when you bring this up. Um, one last point about this, that in India, again, at least when I was there, there was this tendency that if you're doing well in school, then you're probably going to either be an engineer or be a doctor. <laughs> and there wasn't a lot of sort of broad mindedness to the various things that you could do, or there wasn't a lot of consideration to think about what is it that I am personally interested in. You kind of more or less got just channeled into one of these things. Um, and so that may have also led to some of this, right, that I may not have thought too broadly about what is it that I actually want to do. I enjoyed these subjects and the path that looked natural seemed sufficiently attractive. And so um, I just did that. Yeah. As a student in India, I relate to so much of that. Thank you so much for sharing so many details. It was fascinating to learn about your backstory. Um, so my next question is, could you name some of your favorite role models and how their influence or story might have changed you? Um, yeah, yeah, I can, I can do that. Um, and so I think um, the role models that I've, uh, I've, I've tended to have have been people who are somewhat in my radius. I think I find it hard to um, relate sufficiently to people who might like have a bit of a celebrity status and who I don't actually personally know because I feel like I don't really know them. I might be seeing a very sort of carefully selected, carefully crafted side of them. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't, I can't relate too much to them. So they're usually people who are in my radius. Um, and I think I tend to um, have this sense of a role model along, along specific dimensions. So someone might be a role model for dimension X and then someone else might be a role model for dimension Y, as opposed to sort of there being like a holistic um, sense to it. And so I can pick a few of these examples and talk about those dimensions and the people um, there. So one example that comes to mind is uh, Kristen Grauman, um, who is now uh, a full professor at UT Austin. Um, and this was uh, when, like, especially when I started thinking of her as a role model was when um, she was an assistant professor. Um, she's uh, several years ahead of me. 
um, on like the career trajectory. So I was a new assistant professor. She had been an assistant professor for a while. Um, and she ended up taking this form of like a um, like a like an ideal assistant professor kind of thing uh, for me in the sense of uh, especially in terms of like there were certain grants and certain awards that she had gotten that um, in my head became that oh, if I can get these things I think I would feel pretty good as having done well as an assistant professor and so that list kind of became my holy grail uh, so to speak of uh, things to go after in this specific way of like grants and awards and things of that sort. Uh, not to say that I got everything that she got, but um, I do think that played a role uh, for me to have a sense for what are the things I want to go after. Um, another person that comes to mind is Joelle Pignon. She's um, a co-director at FAIR. Um, and so I see her um, around um, at work on a regular basis. And I think one thing in particular that I um, appreciate about her is that she has this, she has a certain knack for uh, verbal communication where I think she can talk about fairly complex and nuanced and even sensitive um, subjects um, to a large group of people um, and sometimes she's just on the spot like she might not always know like it's not it doesn't seem like it has been prepared it often just comes up in some Q&A or some all hands and I think she's able to just handle that um, really well in a way where it's very smooth, it's, it makes sense, and it's not content-free. Like she is actually saying substantial things. Like sometimes with like people who are higher up in the management chain, um, they might come across as smooth, but then if you think about it, you're like, wait, but there was no content there. You didn't actually say anything. Um, but in her case, there is content. She is actually saying something and it is fairly smooth and it's often for complex topics. And I think she does that really well. And I'd, I'd like to get better at that. Um, another example that comes to mind is Larry Zitnik who's also a researcher at FAIR. And I think I really admire the way in which he's able to organize um, large projects. Like he can bring um, groups of people together, um, often interdisciplinary projects. So there might be AI researchers, there might be in this case, the project that we're working on has chemical engineers. Um, and he manages to set it up in a way that everyone feels included. Everyone feels like they are a part of the project, like they own a piece of the project. Um, and he manages to keep everyone focused on the final goal without it feeling like he is just kind of restricting you. Like it doesn't feel restrictive. He just manages to motivate and inspire everyone to be on that track together as a team um, in a very sort of inclusive and uh, inspiring way. And so that's something that um, so I think of him as a role model in that, um, in, in that, uh, in that, in that dimension. Um, a couple of other examples, I don't know how many you were looking for, but a couple of other examples that come to mind um, is, so some of the work that I tend to do is often not sort of mainstream uh, in whether it's in computer vision or AI in general. And so I think people like Antonio Toralba or Olyosha Ifros, whose work I also think of as it's not always mainstream, I find it quite interesting. And so their existence, the existence of their work, I think is quite inspiring and comforting to know that it's fine to be doing uh, non-mainstream mainstream things every so often. Um, so yeah, I think these are a few examples. If I thought some more of other dimensions, I'd probably be able to think of other people as well. Um, but these are some that come to mind. Um, part of your question was, how has it changed me? Um, and I think that's, I think that's hard to say. I think, I think it tends to be quite subtle. Um, and I think the main role that I think they play is that they serve as sort of 
proof of existence, right? Like this here is an example of someone who is doing X, Y, Z. And so there are subtle things that I can keep an eye out for. I might pick up on something specific they did and think about how that would work with my personality or my style. Or like in the case of Kristen, it gave me concrete goals to go after because I had seen her do that. Um, and yeah, so I think it's just these, the fact that they exist and I get to see them operate in a certain way lets me pick and choose um, different pieces of it and adapt it to my style and my thinking. Um, I do think that the fact that these individuals stood out to me as role models along these dimensions is probably a reflection that I already cared about those dimensions. And so I may have found ways to improve on those dimensions one way or the other. Um, but I think the existence of these role models kind of accelerates my progress there because I see very concrete examples of someone who is farther along in that uh, dimension than I am. So I think that's probably the main role um, that I think I think they play. Absolutely agree with you. And uh, I think I specifically enjoyed your point about Dr. Pino because you interviewed her in Humans of AI and now that episode has a new meaning uh, um, to me. So that was uh, very enjoyable to hear. So my next question is, was there a definitive moment when you knew that you were going to be a researcher? And what were the circumstances that led up to it? Do you think any of these circumstances can be replicated more easily than others? Um, yeah, so I think, I don't think there was a specific moment where um, I realized that I want to be a researcher. I think it was um, a sequence of events over several years um, that kind of led to that. And so I can tell you a little bit about it. So in my um, in my undergrad, I was an undergrad student at uh, Rowan University. Uh, it's in Southern New Jersey. Um, so I moved back to the US after high school. And then I went to Rowan for my undergrad. And there as part of the engineering curriculum, we had uh, what were called engineering clinics um, in all eight semesters. And so these clinics were essentially where you would pick a project that is uh, detached from like your regular coursework um, and you would work on that project. And so those projects were often projects that may have uh, been funded by like some local company in the neighborhood or something like that in that in that region. Um, and sometimes they were also research projects that may have been funded by like a government grant or something like that. And so in my junior year, uh, in my third year, when I was, um, when I had to pick what project I want to work on, there is this form that all the students fill out and then they do like a matching process, the department does the matching. And so at the time I was really enjoying my computer architecture courses. Um, and I was really enjoying the instructor who was teaching them. Um, and so I had said that, okay, I, I think that's what I like doing. And so I had, I had spoken to her and she was happy to have me on her project and all of that. And so I had filled the form out saying that that's what I'd like to do. Um, and then that year, uh, Dr. Roby Polikar, uh, he joined uh, the department, he was new. Um, and so because he was new, by the time he showed up, like nobody, none of the students knew that he was going to join. Nobody knew what projects he works on. And so obviously no one had listed him in their, in their preferences because he didn't exist in the department when we were filling the form out. And so for him, they were trying to do this post hoc thing of like, how do we match students to uh, Dr. Polikar? And so I don't know exactly what went in, but he ended up picking me as someone who he was interested in working with um, on the project that he had, which was on pattern recognition, as we called it at the time, uh, in the ECE department, as opposed to machine learning. Um, and so he picked me, um, and so I knew nothing about him. I knew nothing about the space, but I talked to him, and it seemed interesting. It seemed fine. 
Um, and so I decided to uh, go ahead and do that. So that was my introduction. That was my introduction to pattern recognition, machine learning. Um, and I loved it. I loved the projects. I loved working with him. Um, I was, yeah, the projects were going well. We had written some papers that we were getting publications out of and so on. And so I just did that for the four semesters in my undergrad, so the last two years of my undergrad. And so that was my exposure to research um, and machine learning, which then led to AI and all of that. Um, so that's, I think, one uh, piece where I think that played an important role in my trajectory. At the end of my undergrad, I knew I liked doing this, but I didn't know if I wanted to do it for, if I wanted to get a PhD. Um, and so what I decided was that I would apply to master's programs, but I would apply to like these master's thesis uh, programs where you get to do some research as part of your uh, master's degree. Um, and so that's what I applied to um, uh, at many, at multiple schools. And I got into a few different places. One of them was CMU. And it turned out that that year, uh, CMU had decided to get rid of the master's thesis option. Um, and this was after the applications were already due, after they had made admits. And they took the people that they were admitting to that track and either put them in the master's course option, where you probably wouldn't have a lot of opportunities to do research, or they put you on this MS slash PhD track, which was essentially the PhD program. Um, and, and I got slotted into the latter, which is how I was on this MS slash PhD track. And so I remember telling my advisor, Suhan Chen, uh, because he agreed to fund me and all of that, like you would do with PhD students, right? And so I told him that, look, I don't know if I want to do a PhD, so I don't want you to, like if in two years I decide to graduate with my master's degree, which was my plan, um, I don't want you to feel like you funded me and then I kind of quit halfway through. Um, and he said that, uh, he's like, yeah, I know that's what you think right now, but I think you will want to do a PhD which at the time I had found quite surprising because I felt like he doesn't really, like he didn't really know me very well, right? He had seen my CV, he had seen the work I had done and all of that. Um, but I was surprised that he had uh, such high confidence that I will want to continue with a PhD. Um, and so then in my, uh, I think in my first year, um, he then once suggested that, oh, do you want to consider giving the qualifying exam? And he's like, I know you haven't decided if you want to do a PhD or not, but there's no harm in giving the qualifying exam. Even if you pass it, it's not like you have to commit to the PhD program. And so I was like, yeah, I guess that sounds like an interesting challenge. Um, and so I took the exam, I, I passed it. And then it was more of sort of like a one step leading to the other. And I was enjoying what I was doing. And I was like, yeah, why not? Sure, I'll continue with the PhD. So that's kind of how um, uh, a long-winded story, but that's uh, sort of what happens. I think these two pieces, Dr. Polikar, um, picking me uh, for the projects that he had in mind and that going well. Um, and then my advisor, um, I think, believing that I will be interested in doing a PhD and setting up the circumstances for that to happen, I think probably played important roles in this. Um, in terms of can these circumstances be uh, replicated or can some be replicated more easily than others? Um, I think it's hard to say, right? In general, I think it is harder to control or create circumstances that are external just because you have less control over it. And so the fact that I had these mentors, advisors, professors around me who for whatever reason took interest um, enough to create these opportunities, I think that's harder to control. It's probably harder to replicate. Um, I think the part where the fact that I was bringing some value to the table which I'm guessing had some role to play in why they were 
uh, interested in uh, in being there for me and wanting to create these paths for me. Um, maybe that is something that is a little bit more uh, in one's control. And so that's easier to replicate. That said, the fact that I was in a position to bring value is also a consequence of my circumstances, right? I was privileged enough. I had the right of bringing, I had the right opportunity to be able to bring that value to the table and that value was recognized. Um, but through that, then we essentially go back into the philosophical question of is there free will? And I think there isn't, which means you can't really be controlling anything. Everything is a consequence of the past experiences that anyone has gone through. And so then nothing can really be controlled or replicated in that sense. I don't think that's the sense of your question. So I don't want to uh, dig too deep into that. But yeah, I do think the part that's maybe easier to replicate is to the extent that your circumstances allow, um, try and build the skills, try and have an attitude that um, lets you bring positive value to the table. And then you kind of hope that you're surrounded by people and circumstances where that value is recognized and appreciated. Um, and whenever you have the opportunity to give back, right? When you are now controlling circumstances, um, try and create circumstances where somebody else's value that they are bringing to the table is being recognized and appreciated. And I think if we go through enough of these cycles, um, hopefully we'll have more and more of these situations where people are appreciated and are given the opportunities to go forward. Um, yeah. I loved how you articulated that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about work ethic and the grind that goes behind research. So could you describe your work ethic in detail and talk about how it evolved to be what it is? Um, do you believe, for instance, in working 70 to 80 hour weeks or do you rely on maintaining a balance? <laughs> yeah, so this is um, an interesting question and I, I do have some thoughts on this. I am a bit concerned that I might get into trouble with some of the thoughts that I'm about to share, um, but I'll go ahead and share them anyway and maybe they'll be useful. Um, so you didn't specifically say this, but I think one thing that people talk about in this context is work-life balance, right? I think that's probably what you had in mind when you're talking about balance. And I, to be honest, I think I personally have not been able to relate um, to that phrase all that much. And, and I think it's like, I think I don't entirely get why we talk about it as work versus life. When I, when I think of work as a part of life, and there are many other parts of life, like there's family, there's friends, there's hobbies, and we don't talk about like family versus life balance or hobbies versus life balance or friends versus life balance. And so I've always felt like, why do we pull work out as like anti-life um, and then talk about it sort of as one versus the other. Um, and so I think that, has, um, that hasn't that has quite worked too well for me. I recently came across this phrase called work-life integration. And I think it was uh, by Shelley uh, Archambault, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and I think that was a little bit better. And her premise was that balances by definition are super sensitive, right? It implies this notion of there being perfect balance at all times. And that is just very sensitive and anything going slightly one way or the other can very easily tilt the balance. And so she finds that to be sort of too um, high of a standard or too unrealistic of a standard to be going after. And so she likes to think of it as sometimes there's more work, sometimes there's more life, but overall you want things to be integrated well. Um, so I like that integration part. I still don't fully get why we are pulling work um, as, as if it's in contrast with life um, separated out. Now I should say that I am aware that there's a good chance I think of it this way because I'm fortunate to have a job that I do out of interest. 
Um, and so I can imagine that if there are situations where someone has to do a job in order to make ends meet and someone has to do a job in order to support the rest of their life, then I see how this uh, work versus life uh, framing can come about. Um, but I suspect that most people who are at least in uh, research are likely doing it uh, out of interest because for instance, if anybody who chose to get a PhD that already was financially not a very wise decision because for five years, you're not making a real salary and you're continuing on as a student. So at least about a decade ago or so, um, I don't think financially that was a very wise decision, right? So I think in research, I suspect that a lot of us are doing it out of interest. And so this work versus life, I think um, I don't fully get. Um, I, I think the way I um, tend to think about this is that there's a portfolio of things that I'm interested in life. Um, and I decide how I want to spend time on each one of these things. So for example, for me, um, hanging out with people uh, that I like hanging out with is always number one priority. That if any time I have the opportunity to hang out with people I like hanging out with, I don't remember ever saying no, because no, I need to get work done or no, I need to do X, Y, and Z. And I mean, if I have prior commitments, then yeah, I'm not going to flake on those. But it's never been the case where no, I need to get work done and so I'm not going to hang out with people, right? So that is, has been sort of at the top of my list. It doesn't end up being a large percentage of the way I spend my time, right? Um, and so, yeah, so I do think I've spent, um, I spend a good amount of my time on work, but I think I do it um, out of interest because that is what um, I'm interested in doing. Um, there are other things I'm interested in, like right now I'm really into macrame and origami and recently I discovered audiobooks and so I've been spending a lot of time doing that. And so when I find these other things that I'm interested in that, that I would like to spend time on, I very easily shift to that mode where I spend a lot of my evenings and weekends now um, doing these other things. Whereas up until a few years ago, I think I was spending a lot of my evenings and weekends on, on work. Um, and so, yeah, I think I approach it just as I try to maximize the time that I'm spending on things that I'm interested in. And I try to minimize the time uh, that I'm spending on things that I spend on things where I feel like that's not bringing a lot of value either to me or to the world. Um, and that's what I'm optimizing for. Um, and the portfolio of things that I'm interested in varies over time. Like I said, hanging out with people is something I care about a lot. Work has certainly been a huge part of how I've spent my time um, and other pieces come and go. And that kind of changes the distribution of um, where I'm spending my time. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how I think I've, <laughs> I've tended to approach it. Um, in terms of maybe getting to your question a little bit more specifically, um, I do spend quite a bit of time working, like I said, so on weekdays, um, it's often the case that from around nine in the morning to often seven, seven thirty, um, I am mostly just working. I don't, I don't, I'm not taking a lot of breaks. I'm not stepping away from much that is um, uh, focused work time. It's often the case that I might also spend a couple of extra hours um, after like eight or nine, uh, at least a few years ago, it would be that I spent some more time working. These days, like I said, I'm really excited about macrame and things like that. So I spent time uh, doing that. Um, and uh, yeah, I um, I am and uh, I am an always on person in the sense that whenever I'm at home, I'm generally somewhere around my laptop or my phone is generally somewhere around me. Um, and I know this is not recommended, right? Which is why I think anyone listening should take this with a huge grain of salt. I am describing how I do things. I'm not, this is not a recommendation. It's not a prescription, um, but I, I do like staying connected. I do like knowing what's going on. I don't end up craving 
I know there are a lot of people who really like going on trips where they're just completely disconnected from technology for a week and so on. That's not something that I've craved. Um, it is possible that if I do it several times, I might see the value in it. But uh, the way I am right now, I do actually like being connected and staying online and knowing what's going on and things of that sort. Um, so, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And I think you addressed this in your answer, but if you want to add anything else, uh, you also wear the hat of an artist, like you mentioned. So in what ways has your art helped you um, as a serious hobby that you can turn to um, as a researcher? <laughs> yeah, um, so I actually um, hesitate quite a bit to call myself an artist. And I think it's because um, I think of it as like, you get to be an artist either because you got the right degrees and you got the right training or somebody else has to recognize you as an artist. I find it, um, yeah, I always felt like I can't just get up and call myself an artist. That's not how it works. But uh, at some point it became cumbersome to kind of say that, oh, I, every so often I write code that generates visual patterns that I find interesting. That's just like a very cumbersome thing to say. And so just saying I'm a generative artist is, <laughs> um, is, is easier. Um, and yeah, it was also a way of sort of connecting with communities of other people who have similar interests. And I think a lot of individuals in that community do call themselves and I mean, they're making amazing things. So it, um, it makes sense. So yeah, I think I think of myself as a so-so generative artist is uh, what I've settled on uh, in, my, in my own head. Um, but yes, I really enjoy it. I have a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun with it. Um, like I alluded to in my earlier answer, I don't think, I don't think I think of it as something that I um, sort of turn to or that helps me balance something else out in my life or anything like that. I think it is, like I was saying, it is a piece of the portfolio of things that I'm interested in. Um, and so I really enjoyed it. I've, Like I said, I've ended up interacting with um, the generative artist community quite a bit, which I think wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have found that world at all if I didn't get interested in that. And right now there's a lot of excitement around NFTs and cryptocurrency. And it gave me the chance to dabble a little bit into crypto art just to see what the world is like and how these things function. And um, yeah, so I think I wouldn't have had these opportunities and this exposure if it wasn't for that interest. Um, and I care quite a bit about trying to have a diverse set of experiences in life. And so I think these um, hobbies um, give you those means um, to yeah, get different experiences, connect with different people who you wouldn't have otherwise. And so I think it plays that role. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I don't think it, I don't think of it as it playing a role of any sort of a balancing act, so to speak. I have enjoyed several of your pieces of art and I hope you keep continuing for as long as, uh, as long as possible. Uh, my next question is, have there been specific professional moments when you were at your lowest, you felt demoralized or you felt like a failure? And if yes, how did you overcome them? Hmm. Yeah, so I, I don't, nothing specific comes to mind. I don't feel like that has been um, like a, like a deep significant low or where I felt like a failure or I felt significantly demoralized. I mean, a bunch of rejection, like rejections are never good, right? Like a bunch of rejections are, they hurt, they're painful. Um, but I've tended to think of them as like more of these discrete events. Like there are some highs, there are some lows, but I, I feel like in terms of overall global trajectory, I don't feel like there have been like significant lows um, that have, that have happened. Um, one that maybe comes to mind 
and I, I don't think it's a very good example, but I'll go ahead and give it anyway, is that, um, and this was very early on, this was after uh, 10th grade, um, where um, in, you, you probably are, you probably know of this, but like we have these board exams, right, in India, either at the state level or central level or so on. And so after my board exams, um, you, so the school that I was in, the all-girls school up until 10th, um, for 11th and 12th, there wasn't um, the science stream, which is what I was interested in. And so I knew I had to be changing schools. And so admission to these other schools was based on how, what, what grades you got, what marks you got in maths and science in, this, uh, in the board exam. And I think the schools that I was interested in had a cutoff of something like 199 out of 200 or something. I don't remember the specific. This was many years ago, but some things like that, where it needed to be nearly perfect. And I think I had something like 196 or 197 out of 200. And so I wasn't making the cutoff. And so then we visited the school where I would make the cutoff. And there was something about the way the school was set up or something just didn't feel right. Um, and I remember being in tears as we were walking around um, around the school where I felt like I just really didn't want to go to that school. Um, in hindsight, I do think it was probably coming from like a position of a privileged brat, to be honest, that I don't want to go to the school, I want to go to this other school kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, at the time, that did it did feel like a significant thing. Um, I think eventually some wait list opened up and something happened where I did make it into one of the other schools that I was more interested in going to. And so things worked out all right anyway. So even this wasn't a low for a very long time. And like I said, I think it was more a childish, um, I don't want to go to the school kind of tendency than anything serious or adult-like. But uh, this is one uh, This is one that comes to mind. Um, yeah, I think it's possible that there have been things which to others may have felt like a significant low and I just don't process it that way. Um, so another example maybe is after um, after my PhD, I was at ETI Chicago for a few years. And then after that, I was applying for tenure track positions. And um, I got an interview from, um, I think it was like a top five or a top seven school at the time um, in, uh, in, in the US. And I was surprisingly, I was uh, pleasantly surprised that uh, I was even being considered for an interview. So I was quite excited about that. Um, and then the interview, the feedback that I got was that the interview has gone well. Um, and it, it, I think someone may have even sort of somewhat informally indicated that there's a good chance I might get an offer, um, but I didn't, I did not end up getting that offer. Um, and that was very disappointing because I was very excited about the interview. And then when it went well, I was like, oh, it would be amazing if I get this. Um, and I instead, so I didn't go there, I didn't get the offer, I didn't go there, and I instead went to a school um, that, depending on how you look at it, was either top 20, top 40, depending on which ranking you're following, um, which, so which, to some might, could maybe feel like, oh, that is a low, um, but I don't think I think of it that way, because I went there, I started my tenure track academic position there, I had a lot of good students that I worked with, a lot of the work that my current reputation is based on, like things like visual question answering and other things like that, all happened there. And so I find it hard to think of it as a low, like I was doing well, I've done well, think good things have happened since. Um, and so, and even globally, right? Having a tenure track position at a top 20, 40, 50 university is hardly a low, right? That's a, it's a, it's a pretty uh, good position to have. So yeah, I, yeah, I can't think of, significant lows or significant periods where I felt demoralized. I love your outlook on this. Um, in the same vein, my next question is, has there been an instance or a turning point in your career when someone took a chance on you 
which altered your trajectory completely? Hmm. Um, I think in terms of altering my trajectory completely, maybe um, not quite as significant, but I think there are a few examples that come to mind for um, maybe more subtle things that I do think left either an impression on me or opened up a certain opportunity for me that I think made a difference since I can, I can share some of those. Um, and yeah, so one, and I mean, the ones I mentioned earlier with like Dr. Robi Padukar in my undergrad and Suhan Chen, my advisor um, in a grad school, like those obviously played a role there, but that I already talked about. Um, some others are, are more subtle. So for example, one of my uh, internship uh, mentors at MSR, uh, who is now a long-term collaborator. And so this is Larry Zitnik, he was a long-term collaborator. I mentioned him earlier. Um, so long-term collaborator and mentor. Um, this was the first time I had, th so this was a, a while ago. So this is one of the first projects that I worked with him on that. And at the end of the internship, he likes having conversations with interns just about sort of career goals and career advice and things of that sort, like taking a step back. And in that he had given this example of that one thing to maybe try and shoot for over the course of your PhD or your research career in general is to try and have a piece of work where if someone thinks of your name, then that sort of the teaser figure from your paper, like most computer vision papers have, right, that figure one on the first page, that when someone thinks of your name, that teaser figure pops in their head. Or if they see that teaser figure, then your name pops in their head where, oh, like this work is, yeah, it's that person who I know, like, or maybe, oh yeah, she's the one who did that, right? Um, and that to me was quite interesting, not, not in the sense that that's the one thing to like over-optimize for, or like the point isn't to make like an amazing teaser figure so that people remember it. But the point was more that this association between you and something, some work that you've done, um, somehow this framing helped a lot. Like a lot of people talked about doing good research and doing good work and making a lot of impact. Um, but at the time in grad school, I wasn't quite sure what any of that actually meant. And this somehow was a very specific example, the way he put it, that kind of registered in my head and I think stuck with me. Um, and I think that helped. Um, yeah, another um, example is that I had applied for uh, this grant uh, to a to a nonprofit organization, and the way this organization was evaluating these proposals was by reaching out to uh, experts within their network um, to get feedback on both the idea and also on the person who was proposing it to get a sense for um, whether uh, based on their track record or their credentials, if they would be able to execute on this research. Um, and so I, I don't know for I don't know this for a fact, but my sense is that um, someone that they reached out to in their network um, did vouch for me as someone who they felt would be able to um, execute on this proposed work. Um, and I suspect that that made a big difference um, because when the awards got announced, I think I was the only one who, whose institute wasn't already connected with this nonprofit in one way or the other, um, and who wasn't at an institute that is like top five in the country, for example. Um, and so it stood out to me as an, as an outlier and I have reason to believe that someone vouched for the fact that they think I would do well. And those funds were important because those funds is what funded like the VQA data set and all of the work that came out of that. And so I feel like that probably that played a pivotal role in putting me on a trajectory that led to a lot of good things that came after. Um, yeah, 
And one more, uh, like very subtle one that I will share, but just to give an example of how something small can make a difference um, is, is the following. So in the last year or two, so this is very recent, right? In the last year or two, I have um, a, a senior person who I think has gone out of their way to tell me that the fact that I think about things differently or the fact that I approach things differently or I do these different projects is valuable. Um, and I don't think I had anyone tell me that quite directly. I had a sense for it. Like I think people often said things that somewhat indicated that. So in an indirect way, I had a sense. Um, and also that every so often if I'm in a room and I say something, then from people's reactions, you can often tell that, oh, they thought, yeah, that was actually a good point and none of us had thought of it. And so you get a sense that, yeah, there does seem to be something different that I bring to the table that's valuable. Um, but the fact that this person has said this very directly to me, and I am I am farther along in the career, right? I'm reasonably secure, I'm reasonably um, confident, and it still made a difference, right? Even at this stage, um, it made a difference when someone said that so directly. And so I imagine that it would make an even bigger difference for anyone who is more junior, who is earlier on in their career trajectory. Um, and just someone saying that, right, it didn't take a lot of time or effort on their part to do this, um, but it has made a huge difference. And I feel like I, um, it has encouraged me to continue um, approaching things the way I do, continue approaching things differently. Um, and so I think I think that has been nice. I, I am a bit concerned. I feel like one of these days I'm going to go overboard with approaching things differently or being too transparent or being myself too much when I might get into trouble. I might say something that um, someone doesn't like and that has consequences. Um, so I am I am being a little careful, but uh, yeah, I, I did appreciate when the when the person pointed that out and has said so on multiple occasions. Yeah, love these stories. Um, my next question is about research, which for most part can bring a lot of joy, uh, but sometimes there can be a flip side to the coin as well. So could you tell us three things that excite you and three things that frustrate you about research? <laughs> um, yeah, so I think. So three things that excite me. Um, I think one is um, that that early spark in any new idea or a new direction or a new project when you're starting it, right? Like that feeling of, oh, I wonder if we can do X or oh, I wonder, like, wouldn't it be awesome if we can create Y or um, uh, I wonder what would happen if you do Z, right? So like that first uh, spark of whether it's curiosity or an excitement about an end product that you're interested in or whatever the case is. But I think that, yeah, I think that is probably my, um, the most favorite thing um, about research. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that feeling, and it's a bit of a tangent, but I think it's actually a very similar feeling to uh, things like macrame and origami and a lot of like, even with generative art and things like that. So I do think there are um, parallels here uh, but yeah, we can talk about that some other time. But yes, yeah, so I think that spark is probably my most favorite thing. Um, I think the second one that excite me, excites me is if you're in a team, if you're working with a set of collaborators who there's high bandwidth communication, um, people are making good judgment calls where everyone trusts the judgment call that your collaborator will make. Um, there are iterations that are happening, progress is happening. Um, we are meeting, whether it's every week or so, um, talking about either new results or this idea or that idea. And so basically gears are churning, wheels are churning, things are moving forward. And it's those things that for me keep that spark alive, right? I feel like sometimes you can have that initial spark, 
but then if like a group of people can't come together and agree on it or if like progress or iterations is very slow or if communication is breaking down there are so many ways in which that spark can get killed more or less um but if that spark can survive where you're when you remember that spark, you remember why you're excited in sort of every single meeting, I feel like that can be amazing and amazing things can come off it. So I think that's um, that's probably another favorite piece. Um, and the last one I think is, and this one actually, yeah, so this one might even be my most favorite now that I think about it. But I think research gives you the opportunity to, like it can be a form of creative expression um, in the sense that research allows the space for you to bring yourself to it, right? You can, the problem that you pick or the approach that you choose to follow or the people that you choose to work with or the perspective that you, the way in which you think about things, I think all of that ties quite closely into who you are, what your um, views are, what your past upbringing was, what your personality is, what are the things that excite you. And so I think you really can, express all of those things through the research work that you do. Um, and I think I really um, appreciate, I'm grateful for that. I really, really like that. And I really like that research allows for that space for someone to kind of be themselves and bring themselves to the table rather than having to be like a cookie cutter thing where you either fit into the slot or you don't. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I like thinking about those aspects. I like thinking about what is it that I care about and going after those things. And so, yeah, I very much appreciate that research um, gives you that space and that opportunity um, to do that. Yeah, and I mean, like with other things we were talking about, there is there are also issues with that, right? Like given the systems we are in, some people can bring their full self to the table, right? Who are like in the majority, for example, right now, and some other people can't, they don't have the same privilege. Um, they do have to hold back, otherwise there might be repercussions. And so, yeah, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement that it's a completely fair, open uh, playing field or anything like that. Um, I'm just saying that research does present an opportunity to bring yourself um, into it. And that's something that I personally enjoy, um, but I'm very aware that different groups of people are able to leverage that more uh, so than others. Um, yeah, um, in terms of frustrating things. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I am quite hyper vigilant about <laughs> uh, minimizing things in my life that I find frustrating. Um, and I try and maximize the things that I enjoy doing where I feel like I'm bringing some value. Um, and so, there isn't much, you obviously can't minimize it to zero. So I'm trying to think um, uh, more about that. So one, yeah, so one that comes to mind and this is more my personal situation and not perhaps research in general um, is that I lost uh, touch with coding um, right around the time when the tools were changing drastically. So right around when like deep learning was showing up and um, TensorFlow and PyTorch and all of those things were starting to um, bubble up. I mean, even before that, Keras and all of that, right? So when these new frameworks are happening, that's right around when I was starting my faculty position, I was spending less and less time coding. I was working more closely with students and students were the ones doing the implementations. And so I think in that phase, I lost touch with, like I said, with coding and the tools and all of that. Um, and that frustrates me because I feel like it is often, it can, it happens frequently where I have an idea where I would really want to try it out but now I have these extra steps of, of, of trying to find someone else who is also excited about it 
who can then execute on those things. It would be much better if I could just get going. And so there are some ideas where I can just get going and I do that, but there are some where I'm not quite as good at it as I was, for example, when I was a grad student. And so that's something that's frustrating. I wish I could. Uh, and I also have a bit of an aversion to steep learning curves. I'm not very good at that. Um, and so that combination has led to a situation where I haven't um, fixed this or I haven't made as much progress on this as I would I would like. So that's one um, piece that's frustrating for me personally. It's not about research in general. Um, research in general, I mean, the usual frustrating things are you don't know what's going to work. Um, you might try a bunch of things and that might not work out and all of that. But I think I've just taken, it's, it's just so much a part of just day-to-day -day life when you are doing research where they don't stand out to me as particularly frustrating. I just think of them as that's just part of the, that's just the, that's just the rules of the game, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I feel like I don't have anything uh, good to share in terms of uh, frustrating things. True, I'm sure every researcher relates to some part of that uh, every day. So the general conception is that academia and research can often be pretty cutthroat and that one can't be too emotional in terms of one's output and performance. So in contrast, women are often boxed into this category of being too emotional, uh, which is looked down upon professionally. So do you think you inherently lean more towards the emotional side or the detached side? And how has that helped you? Um, has any of it been cultivated consciously? Yeah, so that's an, it's an interesting question. Um, and I hadn't uh, fully realized this, but yeah, so I think I am, um, I think I am a fairly emotional person in the context of uh, interpersonal relationships and equations. So like with like friends and things of that sort, I am a fairly emotional person. And yeah, I would like to be less so to be honest, but yeah, I am a fairly emotional person. Um, but that somehow hasn't translated. I don't think I am an emotional person in the context of my work. Um, so there are things that I care about for the things that I care about. I do put in a lot of time and energy and thought. I um, have fairly high standards, at least I think so for, again, for the things, for the pieces that I care about. Um, so I am attached to my work, like I care quite a bit about my work, but I don't think I'm emotional about my work. In fact, I think I might be less emotional than at least some of the people that I've seen around me um, in my, in, in the radius of people that I interact with on a daily basis. Um, yeah, which is not something that I had uh, explicitly noticed about myself. So thank you for this question. Um, but yeah, and whether or not this has been consciously cultivated, I don't think so, because like I said, I wasn't fully, I didn't have this clarity um, up until you asked this question. And so I don't think it has been consciously cultivated. Um, I do think it helps. I think it helps to not be emotional about outcomes, especially in research, like where there's so many rejections of papers and grants and internships and jobs and all sorts of things that come your way. So if, if, if you have a way of um, not getting, of, of being attached to your work, but not getting emotionally attached to the outcomes, um, I think that can be very helpful. So yeah, if there are ways of um, cultivating that or tips or tricks to use to do that, um, I do think that would be quite useful. Otherwise it can be a very, um, uh, it can be a very difficult journey if you have strong emotional reactions to all the rejections that are likely to come your way. Yeah. Yeah, your answer is really insightful because I myself often struggle to draw the line between being emotional versus detached with research. Um, so moving on to diversity and inclusion in tech and research, which have been talked about quite extensively lately. 
Um, I want to concretize the benefits of having women at the table for a moment. So what are three things that you think female researchers bring to the table differently than men? Hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm not going to have a very satisfactory answer to this. Um, yeah, I think like I think women is still such a large group of people, right? It's still such a diverse group of people where it's hard to think of something that is somewhat commonish um, among all the women that would be in contrast to men. And so I think, uh, yeah, I think that's hard. I think it's still a very diverse group. I think, I think just sort of having diverse perspectives on the table helps, right? There are going to be things that if it's like one homogeneous group of people who are all thinking more or less the same way, there are going to be blind spots that you miss, there are going to be opportunities that you miss, um, sort of a different perspective, someone who thinks about it differently, who approaches it differently, can be a lifesaver, it can be a game changer, it can, right, like it can point the group in a direction that everyone, like I said, I'm just, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but there are just blind spots that will not be covered. And so if you have different perspectives, even just mathematically, right, if you have different perspectives, there's going to be more coverage and you are going to miss uh, fewer things, um, miss, you're going to miss fewer bad things that could have happened. And so in the sense that you will notice them early and so you will avoid those bad things and you might have missed positive opportunities, um, which if someone else is around with a different perspective, they might notice that the group might miss. Um, so yeah, I think just, I think the value is in diversity. I feel like I'm being a bit tautological here, but yeah, if you have different perspectives, you are going to catch things that you would have missed otherwise. Um, and I think it's also like the aspect of like more diversity means more coverage. And like I said, like even mathematically, you can just talk about it, right? But there's also the thing of that research or AI in general, tech in general, um, there are a whole bunch of skills that are useful, right? For example, um, you want people who can keep the final goal of a project or a research direction or whatever scope it is, right? But you want people who can keep their final goal in mind. You want people who are um, sort of keeping track of the day-to-day -day nitty gritty, um, sort of even from a technical perspective, the overall goal versus like the low level details of it. Um, you want collaborations to be healthy, right? So you want people who are empathetic to other people in the room, right? Like research isn't a purely technological thing. It's a very much a social activity. There are people involved in this at various stages. Um, and so you want all of these different things to have, um, to come together well, to be able to have a research success. And so the more diverse people you have, the more likely it is that you will capture all these different pieces um, that are important. Otherwise, if you have one homogeneous set of people, you will capture some subset of this. You will over capture some subset of this and then you will miss um, a whole bunch. And so even from the perspective that there are a diverse set of things that are useful and valuable and important um, in leading to uh, successful research, um, also, I think, motivates the fact that you want to have different perspectives on the table. Um, and so women is one piece of that, um, like gender is one piece of that, but race and socioeconomic backgrounds and upbringings and um, all sorts of things that currently aren't necessarily on like the official list of 
DNI variables that we that we care about and track, right? I think all of that is uh, very valuable. Even like a having a designer on the team, right? Depending on the project, of course, but like having a designer on the team and having an engineer can lead to better outcomes than have there being two engineers or two designers, for example, right? So even that professional training, vocational training, so to speak, diversity there can also help. Um, yeah. Very well put. Um, so I was also curious about one more thing. People often say that it can get lonely at the top. So have you felt this even more sharply as a female researcher in AI, since there aren't enough women in CS, let alone AI? And if yes, how do you navigate the feeling? Yeah, um, I don't think I have felt lonely, uh, to be honest. Um, and I have written a blog post about this that if uh, if uh, those who are watching or listening are interested, they can check it out where I do talk about how for the longest time, I didn't think of my um, gender as a part of my professional identity. So I didn't think of myself as like a woman, a woman in STEM or a woman in AI or a woman in tech or anything like that. Um, I just thought of myself as like a researcher in this area doing my thing, chugging along kind of thing. Um, I do think a lot of it was uh, obliviousness. I think a lot of it was also privilege, but I was fortunate enough to not have been in situations where I was forced um, to recognize the fact that I am somehow different from the majority that are that are around. Um, so yeah, I think there were various factors that led to it being the way it was. Um, um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think I've, yeah, I don't think I felt uh, lonely uh, to answer, yeah, to answer your question very directly. Glad to hear that. Um, so I'm now going to switch gears a little bit towards the personal side of things. Sheryl Sandberg often emphasizes the need to pick an equal partner if women aim to be successful at the workforce. Ruth Bader Ginsburg also attributed her phenomenal success to the equality in her marriage. In your case, how has it helped to have a partnership where someone understands your work inside out? shares your professional passions and struggles and is a partner both professionally and personally? Yeah, I love this question. I don't think uh, I've been directly asked this before, so I'm glad I have a chance to talk about it. Um, so yeah, I've loved it. I've, so for context, for those listening, my uh, my husband is Dhruv Batra, who has had a very similar career trajectory as me. We met in grad school at CMU. We both got our PhD there. We both then went to DTI Chicago. We then both were assistant professors at Virginia Tech. We are both right now associate professors at Georgia Tech and we're both research scientists at FAIR. And so we've had like our CVs have very high overlap since 2005, basically. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and I've, I've loved it. I really enjoy it. I really like the fact that there is someone that I am um, sort of completely transparent and open with, with whom I also have a huge part of my life uh, shared, right? Like you can you can often have, I mean, if you're fortunate, you usually have one or the other, where if you're a significant other, you might be very open with them, but then you may not, like your work might not overlap. And so there's a part of your life that's entirely shared, but another part is not. Or you might have colleagues who have your shared um, work uh, life, like your work part has that intersection, but you may not be 100% uh, transparent and open with them to the extent that you are. So yeah, I really enjoy that intersection. Um, it's yeah what all kinds of benefits right like we can talk about a lot of the low level details of like if there's some situation something in a meeting some perspective that comes up we both have that shared reality right so i don't need to explain the xyz first and then um get to his perspective and he doesn't have to explain the xyz first like we both just witnessed 
the same thing. And so we can now talk about the more nuanced thing. Um, otherwise, if you haven't witnessed the same thing, it's hard to communicate that with sufficiently high bandwidth. Um, uh, we've had a lot of work collaborations. We've worked together on many projects. And, um, and so I've, I've enjoyed um, those pieces. Um, yeah, we have like common deadlines. And so the common, the crunch times are together and then the relaxation period is all completely synced together. And um, so that has benefits uh, where there isn't like, if it's, if it's async, then you might have to coordinate more to figure out, okay, so when do we go on the vacation or when do we take time off um, and so on. And so all of that just naturally gets synced. Um, yeah. I think, I think there are some downsides though, right? So for example, um, the separation of uh, work and life, which I've said that that's not something that I um, aspire to all that much, but I know there are people who care about that. And so this entirely messes with that, right? Like it's very hard. It makes it much harder to draw a boundary between work and life when you have a significant other who is exactly in the same space and uh, doing much of the same things. Um, more so for me, there's also the downside that we, because there is so much of a shared experience, the two of us tend to have very similar thoughts and opinions and views along certain things. So going back actually to the diversity angle, right, that is lacking. Like the two of us tend to be very, our experiences are very homogeneous. And so we tend to have very similar perspectives. And so there probably are significant blind spots that um, are sort of family unit, so to speak, uh, suffers from that neither of us might catch because we just don't have those other experiences. Um, and that's something is that I do worry about. And we talk about this every so often as well, that, um, that yeah, we might just miss certain perspectives um, because both of us are going through the same uh, realities. I mean, very similar. It's obviously not identical, but very similar. We do have different personalities, different temperaments, um, different ways of looking at things, different opinions. So there is plenty of difference in opinion to go around. Um, but I do think for certain higher order bits in life, we think very similarly. Um, and that worries me a little bit that we might be missing a perspective. Yeah. Well, I must say that this was my favorite answer and I was really looking forward to it as well. So glad you <laughs> answered that. Um, so we're nearing the end of my list of questions. Um, to wrap this conversation up, can you tell us five of your favorite things, excluding research and art, that bring you joy? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Does macrame count as art? It probably does, but it brings me a lot of joy, and so I'm going to name it anyway. That I'm, yeah, I think it's pretty amazing that you can just take pieces of rope and with your hands um, make things that are, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, um, in terms of... Um, favorite things that bring me joy. So in terms of food, I think it's uh, pizza and papri chaat. <laughs> uh, not, not together necessarily. I meant those as separate things, yeah, to be, to be clear. Although, I don't know, even together could be interesting. But yeah, I made it, I, I meant separately. Um, Uncle Chip's spicy treat, for those of you who, in, I think in India, people might recognize it here. They might not. Um, things that bring me joy. Uh, my calendar, my my time management routine brings me joy. I genuinely enjoy managing my time. I enjoy minimizing things that I don't like. I enjoy maximizing things that I get joy out of and value out of. And I very actively, yeah, it makes me happy. Um, I recently tried uh, acrylic paint pouring and that was fascinating. Um, that was a lot of fun. I want to do more of that. Um, I recently read uh, Beginner's Pluck uh, that I had, I had also tweeted about it. Um, and I, I really liked it. I recommend it to people, especially early on in their careers. 
um, to check that out. I could relate to a lot of that. Um, things that bring me joy. Um, connecting to people. Connecting to people brings me joy. I like having conversations of this sort. Um, I like, uh, I hate small talk. Um, I like talking about real things. I like having deep connections, even if they are momentarily deep, right? We don't have to become best friends for the rest of our lives or anything like that. But even in the moment, just deep human connection. Um, I actually even have a website that has a bunch of questions that I often go to to have to like use as seeds for conversations. Um, and so yeah, hearing about people's lives, hearing about their struggles, hearing about what brings them joy, again, very much take this conversation. So um, yeah, I think connecting with people brings me joy. Well, this conversation was an absolute delight for me as well. Um, it was such a pleasure speaking with you today, Professor. Thank you once again for taking the time to do this and for supporting our cause. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, like I mentioned, and I'm very excited to have our viewers take a lot out of it as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed um, thinking about these things and talking about them. And yeah, like you said, I hope people who are listening get something out of it. Mm -hmm.